the last several sermons I have been looking at several questions that Jesus asked and the types of faith that he responded to, but, but we kind of move into another section here in Mark chapter 6 where the disciples begin to ask some very significant questions of Jesus. The theme of the first half of Mark, if you've maybe picked it up, is to give us, in the words of the disciples, when, when Jesus was stilling the, the storm on the, on the Galilee, they asked a pretty significant question of him. They were on the boat together. He's asleep. They thought they were going to die. We know the story. The wind uh, is blowing, and he gets up, and he calms the, the waves, and the winds cease, and the so- storm subsides, and there's this great calm. And then the disciples ask this really significant question that is really the question of the first, basically the first third or half of Mark that Jesus is trying to answer. And this is the question. They ask, who then is this? Who is this man? A little later when Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, it's where he grew up, spends the first 30 years of his life as the the neighborhood boy, the carpenter's son. Now he's gone back after a couple years of, of being in ministry and he begins to teach and preach. And they then ask a question about him. They say, where did he get all of this? Anybody ever come home from college and you go, he became smart. Who, who is this person? That's basically what was happening with Jesus. He comes home, and they've just known him as the country bumpkin guy from around the corner, you know, Joe's son, who's the carpenter. He's probably got dirty fingernails, like growing up all of his life in Nazareth. And now he's saying some pretty amazing things, doing some pretty amazing miracles. And they say, where did he get all of this? It's striking that the unbelieving citizens of Nazareth and these believing disciples who had accompanied Jesus for now all of his ministry, asked the same question about him. Who is this? Jesus seems to feel it is now necessary for the disciples to get their answer that they needed. I've talked to you about the importance of when we study the scripture to use both a telescope and a microscope. We tend to like microscopes where we look at word for word, those are really important. I, I love that myself. But the telescope is really important to use, and it certainly is when we look at whole books. Pastor Ray Stedman, who was an, a biblical scholar back in the early to mid-1900s, really helped me to understand these several passages using a, a, a meta view or a telescopic view. And if you look at several of the stories together, you'll see that Mark and Jesus were answering that question, who then is this? And throughout this section, he engages in this deliberate campaign to teach them who he is, Jesus does. He sends them out two by two. He gave them the authority to deal with unclean spirits and to heal people. He brings them back to a lonely place to teach and give them rest. And then he feeds the 5,000. 
right after that. And then he meets them as they are on the sea. He's walking on the sea, and he teaches them there. So when you put all this together, all these stories, Mark kind of gathers together to show us how Jesus could answer the question, who then is this? And when the disciples come to the end of this section, they will have arrived at the answer to that question. So in honor of reading God's word, would you please stand? We begin at chapter 6, verse 7, with the sending out of the 12 disciples on a special mission. My friends, what I'm about to read to you is God's holy word. If you'll listen, if you'll read it, if you'll study his word, it will radically change your life. It will set a pattern for your family. It will teach you how to use your resources. It will help you to be an ethical businessman, a discipliner and a discipler of your children. It'll teach you how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife. So as we read the word, we stand in honor of its inspired nature. It's God who gave us this word, and he intends for it to change our lives. So listen and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture says, and he called to him the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no, no money for their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, where you enter house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not receive you and they refuse to hear you then when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet for a test for a testimony against them so they went out and preached that men should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them this is the word of lord if you'll go ahead and be seated i will continue to read throughout the sermon but that's the first section this ministry of the 12 disciples gives us a number of principles in Christian ministry. The first we see is Mark emphasizes this spiritual power that the disciples exercised. Jesus sent them out. The scripture says he gave them authority over all unclean spirits. Now, I don't know how he did this. It's evident that Jesus was able to impart his own power to his disciples, the same power that he possessed, he gave them, which they were able to exercise at a distance from him. And we don't understand how the Holy Spirit works, but he continues to do that even today. I love to think these things through in my imagination, and I, and I hope you use your imagination as you're studying your, your scripture too. One of my favorite episodes of The Chosen if you don't know what The Chosen is, it's a series that has now come out that has, ha, is trying to uh, uh, help us to understand basically the perspective of the 12 disciples as they respond to Jesus. Very good, uh, very close to, the, to what we see in the scripture. But one of my favorite uh, stories that they did was this story. Jesus gives authority to his disciples to go out and do what he has, he has been doing for the last year or two. 
And I can imagine with great uncertainty, just as what they did in The Chosen, these disciples had questions and doubts and how could we do what he was doing and how could we cast out demons and how can they be healed but yet Jesus is telling us we can go do what he is doing there there must have come a time when each one of them was confronted with that very first demon possessed individual and they were frightened and they were certain uh, uh, uncertain and they they tried this new power out the scripture says they commanded the demon to depart in the name of Jesus. And what a relief to them to see the demons be released and be removed and freedom. There must have been such great exhaustion and just celebration, a giddy celebration in those disciples when they saw that the first time. When they came back, Matthew tells us that they were rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. This was done in, G in the name of Jesus. They didn't go out on their own. They didn't magnify themselves. They went out in the name of Jesus. And in that name, they had power over evil spirits. We also see how Mark brings out the fact that this power was expressed in unity. They didn't go out all by themselves. Our Lord never sent them out individually to do something alone. He almost always sent them out in two-by-twos or, or twelves or, 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 or the 70. Matthew gives us a list of how he sends them out. Andrew went with Peter, his brother. James went with John, his brother, and so on down through the list. I, I've always felt sorry for Simon Zealot. you remember who his partner was? Judas. wonder how that worked. Wonder who paid for the meal when they went to Burger King. I don't, I don't understand. Must have been a, a bit awkward. But So the first time that Jesus sent them out was in small teams. Why did he do that? I, I think we all recognize that teams provide support and prayer connection and protection and, and, and spiritual battles. And one has strengths and the other has weaknesses. We see it in marriages, we see it in prayer partners, we see it in baseball teams. We come together and all of a sudden we're stronger together. The third thing that we see here is that they were given superiority over all forms of evil. They, they didn't need to fear anything that came up against them. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Those of us who go out to minister in his name, and we've come up upon unclean spirits as Darla and I have, not just out there where we travel, even in our churches, we've seen some, some possessed uh, men and women, and we've watched how the Holy Spirit has moved, and they've been healed, and, and that possession was released. We have seen it, it was God at work, not us. There was no entrenchment of evil, which was too difficult for the disciples, and the same goes for us, doesn't it? That's what this account suggests, and what these disciples discovered when they went out is what we discover when we go out and minister in his name. We also notice that there was this dependence that they practiced. Jesus made clear they were to go out without any provision for their journey. Basically, he said, now, don't even go home 
right now. I want you to immediately go out. Go just as you are. Don't think about any preparation. Take no food. Take no money. Don't buy any food. Don't even have a hidden pocket with a $50 bill in your belt. Just, I want you to go and minister right now. God will make provision for you. That's basically what Jesus said. So he deliberately sent them out in this way to teach them a lesson about faith. To teach them that God would provide. That everywhere that they went, they would, make, they would find provision had already been made for them. Now, we have to recognize that we have to read this in the cultural perspective that they lived. Uh, we have to recognize what the culture provided during this day. Hospitality was considered one of the most important things for those in these eastern villages. Any stranger who came to town could, be, could expect to always be taken care of, entertained, food at the table, a warm fire, always there's someplace safe to sleep because they would always be invited. That was just the nature of this culture. So when they went out, Jesus told them, just expect hospitality. There's no motels, no hotels, no Burger Kings. There was no place that they were going to have to use. Just use the normal provision for travelers of that day. So what was Jesus teaching the disciples then and us? He was basically saying those who minister in the name of Jesus go in dependence upon God. Just depend totally on him when you go. Realize that it's God who is the one who opens the doors. You're not the ones, it's God who does it. And know that it is upon God whom you must depend. Well, then we have to answer the question. He's answering this question, who then is this Jesus? He says, well, he's the one who opened its doors. Who, who is Jesus? Well, he's the one who gives authority to you. That's who he is. Who is this Jesus? He's the one who plans the journey. He's the one who creates the opportunities. And he's the one who supplies when you arrive. That's, that's who he is. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the one upon whom we trust. He's the one that we, has to, we have to depend on. That's who this Jesus is. This is what our Lord was teaching the disciples in these stories. The apostle, apostles returned to Jesus it had been a pretty difficult and celebratory time of going out and ministering, doing something beyond their capability, but just amazed at what God was doing. The apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that, that they had done and what they had taught, and Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now, it's clear from this that our, that our Lord recognized 
that this was a period of danger for the disciples. They needed rest. They needed provision. They needed time to think through and wrestle with the journey that they had been on. What did they learn? And from Matthew and and Luke's account of this return, we know that these disciples were really excited about their ministry. They were tremendously encouraged by the results they had seen. They had come back like schoolboys, all excited after the first day of school, eager to report to Jesus everything that had happened. Legs were healed and blinded eyes were healed and demon was released. It was just, they had story after story. And they were so excited about, about it that he cautioned them. Basically, he said, don't rejoice over the fact that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. You see, he could, he could tell that they were in danger of being caught up with pride and exaltation of their ministry, and maybe they were going to get ahead of themselves. Have you ever noticed that it's right after a spiritual high right after an amazing service, right after you led somebody to the Lord, right after the lesson that was just really opened your eyes, that it's the time when the evil one attacks. Is there an amen in the house? Monday is my day. Can you guess why? Sunday evening and Monday. That's when it seems like the evil one attacks me. Wonderful morning, Hugged a lot of necks every, every Sunday, loving you guys and being part of such a great church and preaching God's word, and I'm exhausted. And Sunday evening comes, and the evil one attacks, and I'm exhausted. And I didn't take my Nazarene nap like I tell you guys to take, and he attacks. Jesus understood that's what could go on with these disciples, his buddies. The next passage, well, the scripture says that he knows that they need rest, so he takes them to a, what is interestingly, it says, a lonely place. He takes them to a quiet hillside because he wants them to take a good Nazarene nap. It's biblical. Is there an amen in the house? Nazarene nap? Takes them to a lonely place up on the hillside. He wants them to to rest. He wants to teach them. He wants to give them some perspective of what has just happened. But he had some difficulty doing it because the next passage says, and they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Now listen, now many saw them going and knew them and they ran there on foot from all the towns And got there ahead of them. As he landed, he saw a great throng and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Just last September, Jeff and Angie and Darla and I were in Israel together, touring that northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And we took a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and on a clear day, it's such a small-ish lake that you can look a mile or two, and you can see this northern side of the Sea of Galilee that we're talking about here, and you could see people 
vehicles, houses. And my guess is what was going on. Everybody that wanted to be close to Jesus because of all of these miracles, they could see Jesus and his disciples out on their boat. And they could kind of create the trajectory of what port or where they were going to land. So they began to run around the top of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to find Jesus. Jesus was trying to get the disciples to a lonely place where he could give perspective, help them to rest just a little bit, teach them and spend some quiet time with them. But all of the other people who desperately needed to be healed, they had demons or they had sin, they wanted to hear this teacher. They started running around the top of the Sea of Galilee because they could see where the boat was going. Here they were, trying to get away from the crowd, away from the pressure, away from the hassle and the harassment of, the, of ministry just for a, a few quiet moments, and they arrive on the other side of the lake only to find the same crowd of people have just run 10 miles. I think some of us would have maybe not been as graceful. And maybe we would have said, can't you just give us an hour? Just let me rest just a little bit. We've got to have some rest. Don't you have any concern for us? But did you notice how Jesus responded? He had such a great shepherd's heart. It was Jesus who said, he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be filled. We see that in Matthew chapter 5. And here were men and women so hungry for the word, so hungry for deliverance that he took a boat and he rode, or they rode four miles across the lake, yet everyone else ran 10 miles to the other side so that they could meet Jesus on the other side. And they were waiting for him to teach them, to heal them, to deliver them. And without a word of rebuke, he began to teach them many things, the scripture says. The account really doesn't tell us what he taught them. There are three other gospels that record this story. But for Mark, it really wasn't as important of what he said. It's what he did. Remember, that's how Mark often explained, what, explained his story. It wasn't what Jesus said as much as what he did. For Mark, it was only important to include what the miracle was, not what was being taught that day. So the scripture says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a lonely place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go on into the country and villages around about to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. This is when Andrew found the boy who had a lunch with him and when they had found out, and when they had found out, they said, five 
and two fishes. Then he commanded them to all set down by companies upon the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. Now, interestingly, this becomes a very vivid description. Did you hear some of those descriptive words? Now, remember, Mark is not one of the original 12 disciples. Mark probably wasn't present when this story took place 20 years previous to this writing. He spent a lot of years with the disciple Peter, and Peter probably told this story over and over and over in sermons. And now 20 years later, Mark remembers all the descriptive words of Peter who was present this day. I want you to remember, this is the only miracle which is recorded in all four Gospels. They never forgot this story. Peter especially. He even remembered that it wasn't brown grass, it was green grass, which was growing all over the hillside probably in the month of April when the showers begin to take place. And he said the people begin to set down, and it's interesting if you look at the original language, he said it looked like as they sat together like a vegetable garden. This word groups is the same Greek word that's used for rows of vegetables in a garden. He could still see them setting up on the hillside, lined up like vegetables in a row, 50s and 100s, sitting on the green grass waiting for this miracle. The scripture says, in taking the five loaves and the two fish fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, remember, there is a story of him dividing bread and fish to 4,000, but there's a second story of him doing the same type of miracle to 5,000. It's not the same story. There are two stories. In fact, in I think it is here in Mark, both stories are, are in the same Gospels. Now, we don't have time to go into this story in detail. I'm really trying to look telescopically but I'm sure that you've studied this miracle and you've heard messages on this before, but I'd simply like to point out three things about this story. First is that this was a deliberate action of Jesus. These people were not so hungry that they had to be fed. I need you to grasp that. Later on, when he fed the 4,000, they had been out there for three days. I get kind of hungry after two hours after eating. After three days, they were starving, I'm sure. But that's not the same context as this story. It's, here, it's questionable that they had been without food for even a full day. They had run around the lake. Yes, they were tired. 
but probably not starving to death, that he had to figure out a way to get them food. But nevertheless, he chose to feed them. Why? Let's talk about that. I'll talk about that later, actually. The second thing I, I want us to recognize is he performed this miracle in order to teach, their, teach the disciples something. This was primarily for the benefit of the disciples, not those eating bread. What he did was, was designed to remind them of the feeding of the multitudes of Israel in the wilderness when the manna came down from heaven. He was drawing this deliberate picture of who he was for these disciples. That's why John's gospel records what he said to them. He said, I am the bread come down from heaven. So these disciples were expected to learn from this something of who he was, of who they were following, but they seemed to miss the point at first. The third thing we see is this event was related somehow to God's minist whole ministry to Israel. Mark says they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. Whenever you see numbers in the Old Testament especially, but even sometimes in the New Testament, there's probably some sort of significance, especially if that number is used over and over and over. So whenever the number 12 is used in these stories in the New Testament, it probably relates to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus himself said he chose 12 disciples so that they might sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He said that in Matthew 19. And in the previous section, there was a little girl that was 12 years old, and there was this woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And now there's 12 baskets full of food left over. This is a reminder to these disciples that Jesus was the promised one who was to come to Israel. So we're, he's answering this question, who then is this? Well, he, he was the provider who was sent by God. He had provided rest for his disciples and followers. That's who this Jesus was. He could provide even when it was absolutely impossible. That's who I am, Jesus was saying. Disciples, this is who I am. But their eyes were still a bit fuzzy. So another incident, incident immediately follows. We'll treat it pretty quickly, but it's pretty important. So the scripture says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him on the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went to the hills to pray. And when evening came, the boat that the disciples were in, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were distressed in rowing. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, which was around, around three or four o'clock in the morning, he came to them 
walking on the sea. He meant to pass them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Have no fear. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We can't understand this last miracle except that we see it as kind of an examination period given to the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000. You really have to see it in that context. Jesus had sent them out two by two, had given them power. They had seen their ministry confirmed and authenticated by the hand and power of Jesus working in and through them. They, They saw that. They'd come back excited and they were really turned on by by all that they had seen and done and they were just so thrilled how God used them. And they'd gone to a lonely place to be taught and then immediately thrown back into ministry. They had now been taught that Jesus was the one who came to fulfill the expectation of the Messiah to be given to Israel, promised through all of the prophets for centuries. But somehow, they seem to miss it. So he gives them a test. An examination to see if they're catching on. He sends them out in a storm. He says, you guys get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. I'm going to go over here to the hill to pray. This time it was different. He sends them out into a storm. He is not with them in the boat. He sends them out alone, deliberately, and he goes somewhere else. Now here's my question. How many of the storms of our lives are made up of these two elements? Trouble which comes to us and seems to be overwhelming and the seeming absence of our Lord. I've had one or two of those times. Or dozens or hundreds. And so have you. It's worth noticing that even in this time in which it seems like we are all alone and God is absent. There's still one praying on the hillside as he watches our journey. There's still Jesus praying. After the storm has blown for several hours, The disciples are in deep distress. 
Jesus looks down and he notices that they are having trouble rowing into the wind. Story of my life. And Jesus comes to them, walking upon the water again. It doesn't happen just once, you know, multiple times. And when they see him, I think if we translated the Greek, it would be something like scared out of their wits. That's what it would probably say. They think it's a ghost. And he has to assure them, he says, that thing you see which scares you to death, it is I. Don't be afraid. That's how the Greek is translated. That thing which you see that scares you to death, it's I. Don't be afraid. How many times does he have to say that to us? That thing which scares you, that frightens you, it's I. Don't be afraid. He got into the boat, and Mark said, I think in the Greek it's like, Mark said they were absolutely flabbergasted. I think that's Greek for gobsmacked. At least in Missouri, that's how we would define that. They were absolutely shocked that it was Jesus walking on the water towards them. You remember I said he puts them through a test? They got an F. F for flabbergasted. They failed. It was a total failure, but it astonished them. For the second time now, their eyes are now open to that first question that I asked before. And they asked, who then is this? And then they begin to listen. And this opens the door for some of Christ's most effective, greatest teaching to his disciples regarding why he came. When they came to the end of this section, they had finally heard his answer to that question, who then is this? Throughout this section, he was saying, it's Jesus who sends the storms into our lives. It's me. It's Jesus, it's me, that purposely tests you. It's me. It's Jesus that in those tests will make provision. me, Jesus. It's Jesus who gives us 
a promise. And then he sends us out to see if we believe what he's teaching us. And he tests us. It's the Lord himself, that's all. And this is what he was doing with the disciples, and I promise he's doing it with us. So what was Mark trying to show us about who Jesus was and how he shows himself to us? Well, Ray Steadman writes this. He said, in every challenge, he is training us, teaching us preparing us, building into our lives as he built into the disciples' lives so that we might be men and women of faith, confident and calm and able to cope with life. That's who Jesus is. Would you please stand? I've mentioned several times an author that Darla and I have been reading quite a bit over the last two, three months. In fact, as we were driving here, I told Darla, I said, I've, I've run out of Susie Larson's book for my morning devotions. And she said, well, I'll order the next one for you. So as we drove, she ordered the next Susie Larson book. I encourage you to, if you don't have a good devotional, we'll help you with one. Susie tells a story in her book. The book is called Waking Up to the Presence of God. Some of you are reading it. Of how her adult son and daughter-in-law were going through a pretty tough and disappointing time. In many ways, they were also asking the question, who then is this that we serve? This is what she wrote. She said, we were out to lunch recently with our son Jake and his precious wife, Lizzie. They're the ones who've battled infertility for many years. She said, I've watched them graciously play with nephews and nieces on the floor and enter into family times with a heart of hospitality that's left me breathless. I've watched holidays come and go with no signs of a breakthrough. Still, they've stayed engaged in relationships. They buy thoughtful gifts for birthdays and Christmases. They pray for the rest of their nephews and nieces and brothers and sisters. Even when they hit the wall and go through very difficult news. She said, I've marveled as I've watched them. I've cried out to God more times than I could count. I know he hears us. But this has been heartbreakingly painful. They've tried hormones IUI and IVF and are now walking through the process of something called snowflake adoption. Over lunch, she said, I told Jake, 
Son, I'm praying for an acceleration of your paperwork that you'll be matched with a baby sooner than you expect. She said, Jake's eyes welled with tears and he reached for my arm. Mom, he said, don't pray that way for me. That's not what I want. That's not helpful right now. Listen, I don't need this process to speed up. I need my heart to heal. Our hopes have been dashed so many times. I need a heart that has space for hope. She said, I choked back tears and said, of course, honey. That makes so much more sense. That's exactly how I'll pray. Can we remember in every challenge, God is training us. He's teaching us. Preparing us. Building into our lives as he built into the disciples' lives so that we might be men and women of faith, confident and calm and able to cope with life. As we sing this song, I just, I have a guess that there are some of us going through some of those difficult challenges. If you'd like to come to the altar and just say, Lord, whatever you want, here I am. Use this as an opportunity to build into me, strengthen me, show me who you are. We'd love to gather around you and pray. Please come as we sing. I'm made clean There on the cross at Calvary You gave it all to purchase me You are the Savior and the God Who set me free Now my heart cries This is my Redeemer With my whole life I will give you your holy place forever and now I'm hidden I am covered I found peace into your life 
likeness, you transform me, making me holy like you're holy. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now my heart cries, this is my Redeemer. With my whole life, I will give you praise. All the glory to the one who's worthy. Because of Jesus, I have been changed. You bring freedom to the captives, good news to the poor, healing to the broken, and joy to those who mourn. You turn ashes into beauty, the ruined you restore. I am a testimony of the goodness of the Lord. Now my heart cries, this is my Redeemer. With my whole life, I will give you praise. All the glory to the one who's worthy. Because of Jesus, I have been changed. Because of Jesus, I have been changed. Did you receive this benediction? I pray that in every challenge, you will see him training you, teaching you, and building into your lives. And I pray that because of his love, and value, and commitment to you, that you might be men and women of faith, confident and calm and able to cope with life as Christ in the center. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace for he's already gone before you. You're dismissed.